Today, from Just World Podcast, I'm Helena Cobbin, the President of Just World Educational. We work to expand the discourse on vital issues of global peace and justice, especially in the long-troubled Middle East. This is the sixth episode in a special mini-series we're releasing as part of our Castled Plus 10 project, which started last December 27th and is running for 22 days. This project marks the anniversary of Israel's Operation Cast Lead assault against Gaza during these same 22 days 10 years ago. If you're on social media, we're using the hashtag hash plus 10 to draw together all the activities we're running on our Twitter and Facebook accounts. Do follow us on both platforms. On Twitter, our handle is at JustWorldEd. We also have a great page on Operation Cast Lead in the resource section of our website, www.justworldeducational.org. There, you'll find links to all the episodes in this podcast miniseries and many other useful materials. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I held recently with Alice Rothschild, who's a member of our board of directors and also a veteran activist in the field of health and human rights. Alice is a recently retired OBGYN who has authored three books on the health and rights situation in the areas currently under Israel's control. The latest was Condition Critical, Life and Death in Israel-Palestine, which was published by Just World Books in fall 2016. Alice Rothschild has spent significant amounts of time in Gaza on three occasions, in 2005, 2015, and 2017. In the conversation I had with her, she started by talking about her first visit there, back in 2005, which was the year that Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon announced and then undertook Israel's unilateral withdrawal of settlers and troops from within Gaza. Though Israel continued thereafter, and and until today, to control all of the crossing points between Gaza and the outside world, that could enable Gaza's two million Palestinian residents to retain their ability to travel to or trade freely with the peoples of the rest of the world. Anyway, here's how Alice Rothschild described that first stay she had in Gaza back in 2005. So it was in March of 2005, so it was before the disengagement, um, and I was with a group that was invited to visit Gaza by the Gaza Community Mental Health Program. Um, what we did was um, we toured the Gaza Strip. Uh, we met with clinicians and social workers and teachers and regular folks. Um, and for me, one of the most uh, powerful memories was visiting the Rafah border, which is the southern border of Gaza with Egypt. And there had um, recently been a bulldozing and military operation at the border to create a, quote, buffer zone between uh, Gaza and Egypt for the Israeli forces to have their way in that area. And for me, that was the first time I'd actually been in a war zone. So just touring uh, the the buffer zone, seeing the rubble, looking at, at, you know, children's toys and Legos and teacups and underwear and 
you know, all the detritus of regular life, just crushed with stones and cement and concrete. And it was a pretty uh, emotionally uh, devastating experience for me because it made war very real. And then I heard the stories of, you know, families fleeing in the middle of the night as the bulldozers came and the forces came in and, the, you know, the military operation happened. Uh, so that was a, a very uh, powerful experience. Um, I also uh, spent some time at the Gaza Community Mental Health Program and interviewed uh, Dr. Iyad El-Saraj, and he uh, was this amazing psychiatrist. He used to be the only psychiatrist in the Gaza Strip, um, and he founded the Gaza Community Mental Health Program in 1990 after uh, uh, the beginning of the First Intifada, and the program was founded to support the children. Uh, they were called the Children of Stones because these were the children who were throwing stones at the tanks. And um, what they found in uh, dealing with these children is that not only were they enraged and defiant, which was the obvious emotion you could see, but they were also incredibly anxious, depressed, uh, vigilant, and they had really, um, in a childlike way, internalized the meaning of occupation, their lack of value in the world, and they had experienced a huge amount of trauma because of all the Israeli um, incursions and operations. And what the uh, researchers found is that these kids had turned humiliation into active resistance. So the act of throwing a stone became an act of, you know, stating this is mine and I'm going to defend mine against you. Um, so it was a very interesting uh, beginning for a mental health program. And so they began working with these kids, and then obviously they began working with the mothers of these kids and the other kids in the family and found just a huge level of, what we call post-traumatic stress disorder, but in Gaza it's never post, it's more ongoing. So, you know, these kids might be throwing stones in the afternoon, but at night they were bedwetting, which it was and continues to be epidemic in the Gaza Strip. And then as they got to know these families better, they realized, obviously, there were fathers involved, and many of these fathers had been imprisoned both in Israeli and Palestinian Authority jails, and many of them had been tortured. So these fathers were also damaged psychologically and often physically. And, um, you know, the culture in Gaza is not one where, you know, fathers and mothers go to family therapy. That is not the theme there. But they found that they could reach the fathers through their children. So they began dealing with families as a whole. And they realized that the key to successful healing within the family was the mother because the mother's like women everywhere, um, were much more willing to talk about their feelings and to work through the kind of trauma that the family had experienced. So that was sort of the beginning of the program. So it's developed into this amazing group of therapists, professional staff. Uh, they do trainings uh, for all sorts of levels of mental health care. They do a lot of outreach, uh, like in schools. They do a lot of um, teaching kids how to mediate without turning to more violent activities. They work in clinics on prevention. Um, and they have a, a, a very interesting uh, research unit, uh, which is focused on understanding trauma in a political and cultural context. So this is very different than a lot of you know, therapy, like in the United States, where it's like you focus on the individual. This is looking at how is the individual a part of the political and cultural world they live in. Um, and they were finding you know, the children who have experienced uh, this kind of trauma and loss, uh, both had emotional and cognitive impacts. Um, so they focused on the children. They focused on women who had been victims of violence, uh, domestic or otherwise, and men who had been imprisoned and tortured. 
Um, and uh, the research unit found all sorts of very interesting things. I remember um, one of the researchers telling me about how they would watch uh, children play games because that's how children work things out. And one of the um, popular children's games was called the Martyr Game. And one kid would be an Israeli soldier, and the other kid would be a Palestinian fighter, and they would have a fight, and then the Palestinian would die and become a martyr. And then they would switch places, and the other one would be the martyr, and the other one would be the soldier. So kids would kind of work out their experiences. Um, the other thing that they were able to document is that with fathers who were either absent because they were in prison or um, damaged in some way from their trauma, uh, that there was a real uh, loss of authority of the father figure. So kids were looking for some source of male authority, and they would often turn to more aggressive militant males for that uh, need. And so it was very interesting to hear how they the, got to understand um, the, the ways that children were growing up in this particular culture, as well as the women and the mothers and the fathers. So I, I returned in um, 2015, which was right after – um, the, the last uh, big war, Operation Protective Edge. And by that point, you know, uh, Iyad had died, and um, uh, Dr. Yasser Abu Jamai had taken over as the executive director in uh, 2013. And um, he's this incredible psychiatrist. And at that visit, mostly what people, him and everybody else I talked to, wanted to talk about was the war. I mean, that was 51 days of fear and death and insecurity for everybody. So um, if I just in, interject, between 2005 and 2015, we had not only um, Sharon's withdrawal of the settlers and, and soldiers from within Gaza, um, but then we had the elections and then we had the, the response by the Israelis supported by the U.S to those elections, which was to tighten the siege of Gaza. And then we had Khaled and then another military incursion by Israel and and then the 2014 incursion. So a lot had happened between your two visits. Right, right. And obviously with all of those things, uh, life in Gaza got more and more uh, difficult and uh, human rights issues became more human rights and humanitarian issues became uh, much more prominent, even though they were prominent before. Um, so in in that visit, the conversation was all about the war. And it's there's something about um, talking with you know a psychiatrist about uh, you know the bombs are falling. They're trying to support the staff who are trying to support patients, but no one can get anywhere. And people are running in the night and they're hiding and they're losing their families and they're losing their homes and they're trying to be professional. So um, it was very uh, remarkable to have a situation where the caregivers were as traumatized as their patients. So, for instance, Dr. Yesser had, I think, lost something like 27 family members in a massive bombing. Um, and meanwhile, he's trying to provide therapy to people who've lost their family members. And it's very um, challenging to, to do that kind of thing. But he also has the um, analysis that links the trauma to the siege, the occupation, to colonialism, to racism, you know, that whole uh, linking uh, mental health with human rights, which is, I think, the big contribution of the Gaza Community Mental Health Program, that you can't have mental health unless you have human rights. Um, and then I came back uh, two years later, and people were um, – 
much more able to focus on things that were not about the last war, but about what was going on presently and uh, attempts to rebuild. And, um, you know, the, the war was less in their face, although it was clearly in the background. And so um, meeting with Dr. Yassar, he now has about professionals. They see about 3,000 patients per year. Um, they do a lot of training. So their uh, impact is much broader than 45 professionals. And they also train uh, community-based organizations. So they're trying to decentralize uh, their ability to provide care. And what he did was he reviewed um, the last 10 years uh, that he had been working there. And one of the things that I found really interesting was he said that, you know, a lot of people who were treated for post-traumatic stress disorder, as best it could be post, and who seemed to be doing well, would easily relapse with the first reminder of a bombing or a war. So, for instance, a child who had um, been bedwetting or having horrible nightmares, who worked through the therapy, who got better, you know, a bomb drops near their house and the kids start screaming in the night and bedwetting again. So he had this whole concept of um, delayed onset post-traumatic stress disorder where uh, current events trigger old trauma and it just gets layered and layered into the psychology of the person. And also the fact that they can't escape it. That, that One of the critical features about Gaza is that there is no safe place and um, also that the caregivers are as traumatized as their patients. Um, so what he described was, you know, that they try to do therapy with a focus on the future and on hope and on the good things and you're still alive and you did not lose your children and that kind of stuff. But the population is just slowly being depleted, both, you know, psychologically and then, you know, financially. And, and that he sees a, a muting of, you know, the ability of people to love and comfort each other and have a full emotional life because people are uh, have less and less reserve is how he described it. Um, and one of the examples he gave is that during the war, you know, there were a huge number of casualties, uh, but there were no funerals because um, the Israelis were bombing groups of people. They were bombing people in cemeteries um, so that they couldn't do their usual death rituals of funerals and mourning houses and grieving. And so all of that got frozen uh, because they couldn't, uh, live that normal human experience and way of sort of completing the grieving of their relatives. So that's like an example of um, what Gazans are facing as sort of a chronic experience of trauma. But, you know, the thing that I found fascinating in 2017 was, you know, both the strength and the resilience of the people I was dealing with. Um, they're working, they're doing their training programs, they're doing their community interventions, they have a hotline, um, they were building this new building, and when I was there, the building was, uh, the, the external building was up, and we toured the facilities, which was all, you know, building construction inside, but huge dreams about what this building is going to be so that the center can move in, and they can be self-sufficient, and they can have a radio uh, program, and they can have a restaurant and train people with making food. I mean, they were full of dreams, and um, I just find it stunning that people who live in Gaza can still be full of dreams. You were talking about, um, you know, layer upon layer of trauma and about, you know, re-traumatization and late onset trauma and all those things. But there are also layer upon layer of resilience. Right. And it strikes me that the Gaza Community Mental Health Project and other community-based 
organizations in Gaza play a massive role um, in, in actually building the resilience or keeping it, right. keeping it from eroding. Right. I think that that's correct. I think it's getting increasingly challenging every year, but that is definitely the role they play. I have an, uh, just a little personal example. One of the, uh, the woman who was my interpreter and who also works in the program, she's this dynamic 20-something, educated, good English, two kids, a husband, you know, full of spit and vinegar. And um, she described the impact of the fact that they had very intermittent rare electricity. When I was there, it was like in the four hours a day kind of electricity. Um, but it's not only four hours a day. It's not uh, four hours a day straight. And it's any time in the 24 hours. And it's not predictable. So if you can imagine this. And so she described to come home. And they were her kids. And they were in school. And um, if there was electricity, they would cook dinner and do their thing. And if there wasn't, they would just go to bed. But they would leave the TV on. And then whenever the TV went on, which meant they had electricity, everybody would wake up, they would cook dinner, they would do the laundry, they would do whatever you do when you have electricity, and they would do that until the electricity went off, and then they would go back to sleep. And that kind of ability to function under that kind of stress and disruption was stunning to me. And she was telling me the story like, this is how we do it. And I thought, wow, that is amazing to me because it means these kids live a totally disrupted sleep life but they have figured out how to get done what they need to get done within the context of an unlivable situation. I think it's almost impossible for most people here in the United States to imagine what it's like to live in such a place. And I think it's great that you give these very concrete examples because this is something that Gaza's two million people have been living through for many years now. And it's not just there's no geographic escape in sight, I don't think there's much of a political escape in sight. I mean, this could go on for a long time. Right, right. So um, what do you think that people here in the United States can do? Um, Should we be advocating people doing political advocacy, or should we be advocating people to give money to the Gaza Community Mental Health Program? Or are there networks of um, professionals in this country that are supporting what's happening there that we can support? What is your your view of what should happen? What what concerns? Well, I'm yeah, I'm very much in the you know all of the above category. So that means I've got to get beyond you know NPR and the New York Times and whoever else supports their news needs and really understand what life on the ground is and understand um, how demonized. Gazans have been, and even how demonized Hamas has been. And Hamas has been uh, responsible for many horrific things, but it's also responsible for a huge social service network and orphanages and schools and uh, all sorts of medical facilities. And I I think people need to um, really pay attention to what are the realities on the ground for these people. It would be fabulous to support the Gaza Community Mental Health Program. There's actually um, a 501c3 in uh, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, raises money for the program and for other mental health programs called the Gaza Mental Health Foundation. Um, and I have to, in full disclosure, say that I'm on the board of that uh, program. And we do raise money to support uh, the Gaza Mental Health uh, Program in Gaza. And um, that would be a fabulous thing for people to do. You know, UNRWA, the UN Relief and Works Agency, 
which provides health care and education and some housing uh, for um, 70% of Gazans who are refugees has been defunded by the United States. And so, you know, that is a much bigger organization, but, you know, if people want to support UNRWA, that would be super. Um, the other thing, uh, I don't know of, you know, a professional organization that has taken its role to support Gazan healthcare or that kind of thing. Um, I think the main thing that the other main political activity besides constantly writing your congressperson who will not listen, but there are more congresspeople who are aware of the situation, and we now have a Palestinian congressperson, which is fabulous, is to uh, support the boycott divestment sanction movement, which is really an international movement that's putting pressure on Israel to end the siege and the occupation, because there's not going to be any any change until the siege ends, and that's pretty clear. Um, so that's the political action that I think people need to take home. Alice, tell us a little about the women's organizations that you met with in Gaza. Sure. So um, as partly because I'm an obstetrician-gynecologist with a particular interest in how women live and cope in the world, um, I spent some focus of my time in Gaza on the situation for women. And first of all, I think we have to be clear that there are a lot of different kinds of women in Gaza. Um, while there's a huge burden of poverty, there are also middle-class women. There are a lot of educated women, many of them unemployed. Um, and there are women that are um, living in very conservative families. There are women who are living in more progressive families. So we have to be careful not to generalize. Um, but women form, a, a, you know, a strong core of the society. Um, the other thing I think we need to realize is that the more there is a crushing of the economy, and the political landscape, the more oppressed and constricted the lives of women become. So in Gaza, we can really see how uh, war, patriarchy, psychological illness, domestic violence, culture, um, really come together to create realities for women. Um, and if you think about the role of women in Gazan society, you know, they're responsible for the home and for the raising the children. And they... Uh, tend to have uh, larger numbers of children um, than we do in the U.S. So there are frequently issues around pregnancy, childbirth. Uh, you know, they have to interact with the medical system. Um, they have to be sure their children are living in a safe environment, that they have water, that they have electricity. They actually have a huge uh, responsibility for how the society functions. And if you think about all those things, those are all impacted by recurrent war, incursions, siege, husbands in prison, all that kind of stuff. Um, and as things have gotten more difficult, um, there's been a rise in you know, domestic violence, early marriage. You know, women tend to bear the brunt of male trauma and impotence and rage. So it's a highly uh, challenging place for women to be. Um, and since they're also responsible for the health care of their families, the fact that people can't get permits to go to higher level health care in Israel or the West Bank or Egypt um, means that, you know, women are dying of breast cancer. They're dying of ovarian cancer. They're, you know, their children aren't getting their care that they need. So they're very uh, central uh, to this conversation. Now, there were um, three centers that kind of spun off from the Gaza Community Mental Health Program. Um, the one in the north is called Aisha, and then there's one sort of in the middle of Gaza, 
um, that's called Al-Zahra, and then there's one in the south called Rifak. And these centers, in various different ways, uh, really focus on, um, first of all, providing women a place to talk and do uh, some group therapy, uh, talk about war trauma, um, do that kind of sort of psychological work, um, because, you know, the husbands aren't going to come, so the women have to do the therapy for the family. And they also um, deal with uh, disease burdens for their children. Um, and not only do children have a, you know, a huge experience of trauma, um, there's also a higher uh, level of what we call disease burden, um, in other words, hereditary diseases, because there's a high rate of uh, marriage of first cousins and close relatives. So this is a big problem that women have to deal with. And then you put on top of that, you know, a toxic environment from war, um, malnutrition, lack of quality medical care for all the reasons of the siege and defunding UNRWA and that kind of stuff. Um, so they've got that going. Um, and, you know, oftentimes in a stressed family, this turns into domestic violence, uh, you know, that's complicated by poverty. So I saw, you know, women who were very depressed, uh, some were suicidal, but they get support and therapy from these organizations. Um, the other thing they focus on is uh, providing uh, training so that women can become more economically, um, uh, you know, able to support themselves economically, which gives them more power in the marriage or if they end up being divorced. Um, so they do a lot of work around women's empowerment um, and development of skills. Um, I also visited uh, the Hyatt Multipurpose Center, which is a project that looks at um, women's uh, legal rights and consulting. So they help women around issues of gender violence, and they work as mediators between husbands and wives so they don't have to go to court. So that was also a very um, powerful experience to see these women really taking on the system and, and, and fighting for the rights of women. Um, I just also want to mention another uh, group that was so uh, impressive to me and really uh, shows the power of women. Um, there is a group uh, that's called uh, the Nawa for Culture and Arts Association. And this was a uh, group that was founded by a woman named Rima Abu-Jabir in the Dar al-Bala uh, area. And she's just this, like, force of nature. So she, after the 2014 war, decided that children needed to be supported. And the way to do this was to empower young Palestinians through traditional culture and arts. So she focused on families in this region who were severely hit by the war. And they do psychosocial support. They do childhood, early childhood education. They do professional development for teachers. And they focus on the preservation of Palestinian culture. So we went to her center, and there's all this embroidery and poetry and, you know, just uh, um, a real celebration of Palestinian culture. The kids sing all sorts of songs about peace and love. And it was really a, a stunning experience. And one of her projects was to turn um, this 1,700-year-old monastery that has a mosque downstairs and a monastery upstairs into a garden and a children's library. So we went to visit this, like, archaeological piece of rubble. And she saw it as this library, and we toured the area. And she has actually uh, gotten funding and has UNESCO support and is going to make this into a children's library and a garden for the kids. And it was, for me, um, an example of the kind of strength 
uh, that women have there, and also the ability to envision something better than what they've got. So I wanted to be sure uh, to sort of give a, a call out to her because uh, she was so inspirational uh, when we when we met her and met with the kids and and saw what they're building. I think that's fascinating because right here in the states right now we've been having this to me amazing moment of Palestinian cultural pride. You know that I've mm-hmm. never seen before in my 35 years in this country with um, right. the hashtag tweet your soul and women, right. you know, across, around the world tweeting pictures of themselves with traditional Palestinian embroidery. So it's kind of interesting to hear that that has something to do with what's going on in Gaza. And of course, cultural expression and activities is also a part of the Great March of Return. Um, so. I think hanging on to the the cultural aspects of being Palestinian and asserting them in the face of repeated Israeli Zionist attempts to either crush them or expropriate them is is really an interesting thing. And it's great to hear about this uh, inspirational woman in Deir el-Balakh. You know, Deir actually means a, a monastery. So Devil Bell right. is a good place to have have a, an ancient monastery doing great things now. Um, I hope it works out. Right. <laughs> I mean, the other thing, um, I went to this kindergarten called the Mira Kindergarten, and this was also run by this amazing woman, um, named Wajdan Diab, who um, runs this kindergarten. And during the war, there was the bombing of the city of Shazaria, um, and, and basically this huge city was, bombed to smithereens and people fled in waves. They said it was like 1948. I mean, women described, um, you know, running over dead bodies and, you know, pieces of limbs and grabbing their children and just horrific things. And so this woman decided to take in uh, a whole bunch of kids who had survived this horrific trauma into her kindergarten. Um, And, you know, she provided a safe space. They had playgroups. They had clowns. They had all sorts of things to help kids feel better. And one of the things the kids did while we were there was to show us their uh, soaps. So the kids got, some of the girls got dressed up in embroidered dresses. And, you know, it was very clear that this was part of their pride in being Palestinians and part of their healing from this incredible trauma. Fascinating. Well, listen, I think we're probably out of time now, but thank you so much. It's great for um, us to be able to hear your your view of what it's like to actually be a woman or be a person on the ground in Gaza. So thank you, Alice. Well, thank you. Hi again. I hope you enjoyed that conversation I had with Dr. Alice Rothschild and found it informative. This has been the sixth episode in our podcast mini-series on Cast-Led Plus 10 Years. You can find out a lot more about our Cast-Led Plus 10 project at our website, www.justworldeducational.org where you'll also find a resource page that will link you to a rich array of resources about Israel's cast-led assault against Gaza in 2008-2009, about the situation in Gaza today, and what you can do about it. On our website, you'll also find a donate page where you can learn how to support our important work on this and other issues going into the future. Thanks. Be sure to follow what we do and stay well. For Just World Podcast, I'm Helena Corbin, here in Washington, D.C.